Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Christopher Whitgo, Jana Morgan, Nathan J. Kelly, and Peter K. Inns to discuss their terrific new book, Hijacking the Agenda, Economic Power and Political Influence, published by the Russell Sage Foundation in 2021. How do competing interests shape public policy? Why are the economic interests and priorities of lower working and middle class Americans often neglected, while the interests and priorities of wealthier Americans are often front and center for the U.S. Congress? Previous work in political science has highlighted the disparity among the classes or the importance of agenda setting, but hijacking the agenda unpacks how business interests and wealthy individuals shape public policy to their benefit by hijacking the agenda away from the interests of average Americans. Whitgo, Morgan, Kelly, and Inns focus on the speech of elected representatives as recorded in the congressional record. Their remarkable congressional rhetoric database codes speech from 1995 to 2016. Using an integrated multi-method research design, they conclude that the interplay between two types of power, structural and kinetic, give wealthy interests considerable influence over the issues that receive congressional attention, and explaining these patterns of issue attention over time is crucial for understanding disparate policy outcomes. In addition to a sophisticated quantitative analysis, the book provides three astute case studies on financial deregulation, re-regulation, and the minimum wage, and also a general theory of politics and economic power. Hijacking the agenda details how money, especially in the form of campaign contributions, affects which economic problems Congress believes to be important and acts upon. Christopher Whitko is professor of public policy and associate director of the School of Public Policy at Penn State. Jana Morgan and Nathan J. Kelly are professors of political science at the University of Tennessee, and Peter K. Enns is professor of political science and public policy at Cornell University. I'm thrilled to welcome them all to New Books in Political Science to discuss this impressive and remarkably relevant new book. 
Um, welcome, everybody. Thank um, you. Welcome. Thanks. Most collaborative works have an origin story, and yours begins with a puzzle about economic equality. Chris, I'm wondering if you could start us off by telling us how this group, not all American politics specialists, ended up writing this book together. Yeah, well, we have a pretty diverse uh, range of interests, actually. I, I guess Nate, Peter, and I are technically, uh, you might call us Americanists, but Jana is a, is a comparativist. But I think the origin story goes back in some sense to Chapel Hill, where we were all PhD students and we all kind of became interested in similar types of topics, you know, um, power differentials, representation, inequalities in representation, things of that nature. And we've all kind of studied that uh, to a large extent throughout our career. And then the particular spark that kind of led to this, I think, was there was a, a growing interest in you know, why the public does not demand redistribution in response to growing inequality. And uh, Nate and Peter had a nice paper on that um, a little while back now, maybe 10, 12 years that I think was in the AJPS. And we were talking about that, if I remember this correctly, at a, maybe a Midwest conference. And we had a really good conversation, the four of us, maybe over a beer or two and started kind of thinking about why is this happening? Why are people not demanding redistribution in response to inequality? And one thing we kind of thought of as a potential answer to that is there's just not a lot of people, political elites, people in Congress, presidents and things of that nature, kind of highlighting this issue. And that's going to have an effect on, on public demands for policy. And that led us down this road of well, how do these different issues get onto the agenda? And that's really what this book is about. You know, your acknowledgments are fantastic. And I recommend them to other authors, not only as a how-to, but also how to understand how funding supports relate research, what authors can do with that funding, how, you know, how you're able to take an undergraduate like Jace Prince with with particular skills who can enhance the project, uh, the way you credit workshops and people's comments and, and the few people who read the entire manuscript. One of them is my colleague at St. Joe's, so I'll call just her out, Laura Bucci. So yay to Laura. Um, so I, I, I want to say like you do just an amazing job of sort of reminding people of how research is done. And, and I love this story because you're saying, look, you met as graduate students, you've pursued different approaches and sometimes in a different subfield in political science, but at a conference, and there was a lot of smiles, by the way, as, as Chris was explaining this and nods that this is why, this is why we go to conferences, right. To have those kinds of conversations. And I think, you know, right now we're at a time in which it's challenging for people to get to conferences or conferences aren't being held. But anyway, I want to recommend the acknowledgements to this book. Don't skip over them. Yeah. And since uh, you brought that up, let me, sorry to interrupt you, but let's just say thanks to Russell Sage for funding this research in, in various capacities in particular. Yeah. You made that so clear that not only did they give you money, <laughs> but they gave you place and they gave you um, uh, ways to work that really changed the book. So, no, that that was really, really well done. Um, many of our listeners are living outside the U.S. or their research specialty is, is not American politics. So let's begin with why it might be important to talk about disparities in class. Um, uh, 
You open with a story about Joe Crowley, a representative from Queens in New York City, and he's using a one-minute speech to highlight the need for an increase in the minimum wage. And he's doing this in 1999. Why this vignette as the opening? Yeah, well, I'll take that one. Um, I, one of the things that I did in as we were writing this book was uh, for the case study chapters, I, I actually read the full text of the congressional record that pertained to the minimum wage, financial regulation and financial deregulation. Um, as we were writing those case studies, read and coded them. And it's actually something I did at Russell Sage. They dedicated lots of paper to that task. Um, and I came across that that um, little vignette from Joe Crowley, and it just encapsulated kind of one of the points that we were trying to make in the manuscript and how in his speech, he's not just calling attention to the minimum wage, but he's actually calling attention to how we're not talking about the minimum wage and we're talking about all this other stuff instead. And so it just really kind of emphasized uh, a key point that actually members of Congress make frequently in the congressional record, which is how certain issues are getting talked about a lot and other issues are being ignored. And this is something that members of Congress are clearly aware of, that that what gets on the agenda matters for, for policy outcomes. And so this was something that just really stood out to me as a really clear anecdote about what the core point of the book is. Your focus in the book is on politics and economics. And I'm wondering if one of you would would speak to the importance of economic issues on the agenda and why the book and the case studies focus on economics. Um, yeah, sure. I, I can jump in on that. So. You know, it's interesting. In a lot of my past work, I've actually focused on really, really broad sets of issues and talked about economic inequality as being affected by all different sorts of policy that aren't necessarily explicitly about economics. But what we wanted to do in the book is is make sure that we were nailing nailing down a focus on the policies that are most directly, most tangibly associated with distributional outcomes. And, and those policies are really um, the kinds of economic policies that we that we ended up focusing on in the book. And we also were driven in part by some methodological considerations when we decided sort of the specific issues to focus on, because one of the things that we really wanted to avoid, because the technical side of this project, when we when Jana wasn't reading um, the congressional record, we were doing a lot of machine reading of, of the congressional record and counting words and using algorithms to figure out what was being talked about. And we wanted to try to avoid as much as we could having to dive into even more complicated methods that would um, require us to do machine learning techniques that um, would get into the valence of, of speech, like whether when somebody's talking, they're talking about something positively or negatively. Um, and so we tried to pick, pick some issues that were really valence issues. That is, if you're talking about them, we know which side you're talking on. I mean. No, nobody stands up and gives a speech that says, we really need to have higher unemployment. I mean, no, nobody says that. So we know if you're talking about unemployment, what your, you know, what your position is on the issue. So, um, so that was also a, a driver uh, of, of our decision. But substantively, we wanted to know, ultimately, we're concerned about distributional outcomes down the line. And focusing on these economic policies gave us the most leverage on, on the sort of downstream consequences that we ultimately care about. So political scientists have been concerned about wealth and power 
and the importance of agenda setting for a, you know, a really long time. So you're building on uh, work in political science that is familiar to, to some, um, is very foundational. But your, your focus is on how. You know, how is it that business interests and wealthy individuals use structural and kinetic power to get specific policies onto the agenda, ultimately shaping the policy outcomes? So let's start with a couple of um, definitions for people. First of all, the agenda. Um, political scientists usually mean something very special by that. So, so how is it that you define the agenda and then we'll do structural and kinetic power as well? Well, one aspect that I think is, is really important to the book with the agenda is we view the being on the agenda in Congress as almost a, a continue something you can measure in a continuous process. And so and this differs from some research that considers the agenda as you're either on the agenda or you're off the agenda, like we might think of as a as a meeting, did you make it on the agenda and it's going to be talked about or are you not on the agenda and it's pushed till, till the next meeting? And for us, we're thinking about it as if somebody mentions uh, an issue, inequality, unemployment, the deficit, even mentioned once, it at least was on somebody's mind and others heard about it. If the, one of those issues gets mentioned many times, it's starting to have more influence. It's more of a factor. And so there are specific things like, is a policy proposed? Is it in a committee? These are more formal aspects that are part of the agenda process, but we're very much thinking of, you can be more on the agenda as a policy can be more on the agenda or less on the agenda. And then we use how much literally the amount of speech, the number of words on that topic to give us a continuous measure of how much uh, these economic issues are on the congressional agenda or not. That's a really important point, uh, both sort of substantively and also methodologically, because some of the issues that we're talking about here, like inequality, get mentioned just maybe a few dozen times by a member of Congress. Um, by any member of Congress. So among all 535 members that might get mentioned a few dozen times in a particular year, whereas other terms um, get mentioned thousands of times. And so the, the just on or off is not a very effective indicator of, a, of those types of differences. And let me go back, Chris, to something that you said. Thank you, Jana, for the clarification. That was great. Why focus on Congress and, and why the focus on speech? And I, I don't direct this to Chris. I, I direct it to all of you. Because I, I think, Chris, one of the really important pieces in the book, you're, you're sort of alluding to it, has to do with, with why, as people talk, they are, are creating agendas in other people's minds. So, so let's start with Congress. Like, why, why Congress? And, and then let's talk about, you know, why the focus on speech and its relationship to structural power? So I can start with the why Congress question, I guess. And I think uh, the, the short answer is for, for any of these kind of problems to be fixed, you know, whether it's reducing inequality, um, increasing uh, wages considerably, et cetera, um, you know, Congress is going to have to take action. I've written quite a bit on the role of the states in fighting income inequality and stuff like that. And there's things that the states can do, but ultimately it's going to require concerted 
federal action to confront these major economic problems we're having. And uh, that's really why we decided to focus on Congress. And you and you note that it's not that some of the insights in the book can't be applied to other branches, but that that this is the focus. So um, yeah, yeah. And that was really well done from from me. That yeah, I think you, early. You, you might find <laughs> um, similar dynamics at the state level as well. But uh, you know, to just address these issues, you're going to need Congress to take action. And you're also very careful about evidencing your claims. So that that's part, I think, also of why you're 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 mentioning it could, but you're not saying that you that you can prove that. Um, okay, what about speech? What what why 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 is the talk? I mean, sometimes people think about the, the people just like you know, just throwing up onto the congressional record and just kind of standing in an empty room and saying stuff so that their constituents can hear them or that they can can say that they said, said it. But you're taking speech really seriously and you do an amazing job in the book of, of justifying that choice. So um, let's try to get that out there as well. So speech is a costly signal is, is one thing. I mean, members of Congress don't actually, even though we maybe see them on TV or C-SPAN or whatever as political scientists, and there's always people up there talking, each individual member of Congress does not actually speak that very much, uh, very much in, in a particular Congress or a particular year. So, so they're not just going up there and talking about things that they don't care about. They're talking about things that they care about. They're putting a lot of thought into the, the issues that they're speaking about. So if they're speaking about the deficit, then they're not speaking about, say, unemployment or wages. And they're speaking about the deficit because they want to be speaking about the deficit. They put thought into that. So that's a that's a really important reason to focus on speech. And then just in, it's a good indicator of kind of how prominent an issue is on the congressional agenda, because if it's just an issue, you know, like inequality is something Bernie Sanders has spoken about a lot for a long time, you know, and sometimes it's just Bernie Sanders out there talking about inequality. There's obviously not been a some big national policy debate in Congress, you know, the National Inequality Reduction Act or anything like that. So that's just Bernie out there talking and a few other people, whereas, you know, things like uh, the deficit. There's tons of actual legislation on the deficit and, and a lot of discussion about that in different stages of the legislative process. And we're able to capture those differences in our in our in our data collection. One thing that's really interesting about that, too, is that members of Congress, um, while they are influenced by what's actually you know on the what policies are being discussed on the floor of Congress, for example. It's amazing um, how often members of Congress will use the legislative time that's supposed to be dedicated to a particular piece of, of policy to actually talk about something else entirely. So this was something that we saw happening a lot with minimum wage policy, for example, where um, when they were, there were occasional actual debates about minimum wage in Congress, that Republicans in particular, when they would take the floor, they would talk about other things. Like they would get up and talk about, oh, there's this, you know, big foreign policy issue we need to be concerned about, or, you know, gas prices are too high or whatever. They would talk about something else, even though ostensibly the topic was meant to be uh, the minimum wage. So members of Congress, their speech is sort of related to what is on the formal agenda, like Peter was mentioning before, but it's not just about the formal agenda. They use a lot of latitude to, to talk. 
Yeah, you know, I wanted to just kind of follow, follow that up with um, some discussion again about sort of the development of the project. And I would say some of our attention in the book to justifying the use of speech as a measure of the agenda is in part driven by the fact that we needed to convince each other that this was a useful thing to do. Um, and, and so, so some of that writing is to convince each other that this is something we should be doing. And it's also naturally a place where we got a fair amount of pushback as we were developing the project over time. And so we really were pushed to think carefully about that. And it's, and it's also a reminder of how fortunate we were um, that Russell Sage Foundation was sort of willing to take a chance on this because thinking about speeches in the congressional record as an indicator of the agenda or really an indicator of anything um, is not necessarily very common in the existing literature. And so for Russell Sage to say, yeah, uh, we're going to go ahead and throw some money at this so that, so that these folks can put this data set together, together, uh, was, was really fortunate. And, and, you know, I think it means that we have an extra level of gratitude, uh, to Russell Sage for, for taking the chance on it. And, um, you know, we're glad that it, it, it has worked out, I think as well, as well as it has. Um, but it's, it, we, we've been fortunate. And I think this project also, while it's about sort of income differentials, it also drives some of the point of how important it is for academics to have resources. I mean, we, we could not have done this project without a whole lot of financial and other sorts of resource supports. And so I think, you know, we need to acknowledge that we've been in a pretty fortunate situation to be able to, to pull this project off. Um, and, and not everybody, uh, you know, has access to the resources to make it happen. So, um, so we did, and we're, we're lucky that way. Well, in a lot of ways, it makes the point of your book, because what you're saying is that people who have resources can produce really good arguments based on, on, for example, a study like this, right? And so if you don't have the study, you can't, you can't call the question. And so this provides a remarkable, in a sense, micro case of how it is that wealthy institutions and uh, so, so some of the institutions you work for could support such a project, but it'd be difficult or impossible, depending on how the budgets are going, particularly at public institutions like the University of Tennessee. And many uh, of the more elite schools are actually not interested in pumping this much money into a speech project uh, that requires both the kind of algorithms and the building of the database one way and hand coding and having one individual take on a case study and look at it in the kind of detail that Jana was, was outlining earlier. There's one thing I want to highlight that, again, I, really struck me. You call it an, an ideational element, but it's this belief in the importance of business interests to the economy that you sort of see as part of the point of some of the speech. And I see this in my students. We read Adam Smith and Adam Smith says, well, actually, it's not the, the business interests that align with the good of the nation. And actually, my students are just like, well, he must be wrong about that. <laughs> like it, it can't be the laboring poor are the ones most in line with the, the nation. And so you talk about how the belief itself is part of the power and how the talking about it in Congress helps create this, which brings us back to this question of structural and kinetic power. So let's define those two terms, which I know are second nature to you. Um, uh, who wants to start us off with, with one or both of them? 
So I think, you know, structural power is a term that political scientists have been using for for a while. Um, It's just the idea that it's a it's an aspect of power that business interests have. And I guess we would say the wealthy also have to some extent uh, that stems from their pivotal role in the economy in investments in job creation and things like that. So they have a certain uh, element of power just by virtue of the fact that, you know, we live in a capitalist country and we can't have job growth. We can't have economic growth. We can't have investment into new ventures without the cooperation and activities of business. So that gives them a lot of power and leverage in the policy process, you know, even if they don't do anything else. But uh, maybe somebody else would want to talk about the other things that they do do, (laughs) which is kinetic power. Yeah, I just add on to what Chris said about structural power, too, and relating to what, and Susan, you mentioned about the ideational aspect. It's both the, that structural power is both the, is both the reality that business is important to the economy and also the sort of belief that, um, that business holds this power, that, that politicians talk about, that they, they sort of embrace this idea that, that business is essential. And we can see this sometimes, um, you know, in ways that, that politicians talk in the media, but it, it really comes through in the way that they talk in the in the congressional record as well about how business is the you know wellspring of our economy. That it's these kinds of ideas, um, and it wouldn't have to be that way, right? We could think of of sort of the worker as the sort of origin, the centerpiece of our economy, and that's that's not the ideas that we that we tend to emphasize. So that's an important component of structural power as well. And I'll throw it to Peter on the kinetic power. Yeah, sure. And so in, in contrast to structural, where it's the position, whether it's the actual position or the perceived or believed position that, that gives influence, kinetic power, we think of as the energy or effort that's expended to try to influence the policy process. And this, one of the important examples in in the book is uh, campaign donations, where you're actually, the energy expended is dollars. And the idea is some organizations, businesses in particular, have an advantage structurally, their position, and have the ability to uh, exert more energy or effort to try to influence the policymaking process. So there's this double advantage. One really important aspect of the kinetic aspect of, of power and influence is that there are times when those who are at a structural or positional disadvantage can leverage this kinetic power to try to exert influence. And so this might be a protest or in the, in the book, we talk about how this relates to um, civil rights movement. And so what we think is really important when we think about these two dimensions, structural and kinetic, it can help explain the sustained advantage that wealthy and business influence, uh, wealthy and business interests have in the U.S. political system. But it can also help explain the exceptions when those who are systematically disadvantaged in the system are sometimes able to exert enough kinetic, uh, kinetic power 
to make meaningful change. And so we, we think these two elements are really important to help explain the, the, the status quo and the exceptions. Thanks, Peter. No, and that's, and you make it very clear in the book, and that was a, a really good, clear summary of, of, of a lot of work that happens in, in the book. Um, before we go on to the to fleshing out these claims, I, I just want to pause for a second to talk about methods, because you've all mentioned the, the different methods that were being marshaled to make this book as rich and nuanced um, as it is. So uh, let's describe uh, just the sort of for, for, the, for the, the people who really want to know the quantitative side a little bit about what you're doing and for the other people who are or for all people who are interested in the case studies, et cetera, like how they were done. So someone just want to start us off with like a, you know, something that will answer some of the questions that the quant heads will have, but won't completely lose everybody else. Yeah, that sounds good. So, I mean, a big a big part of this project was just sort of boring background stuff um, that was, how do you get the words of the congressional record into a format that you can actually use uh, for quantitative text analysis? And a lot of people have worked on this problem over the years. We actually, um, you know, sort of started with a, a an algorithm, a parser, really, that um, was built by the Sunlight Foundation, which has kind of uh, become defunct at this point. Um, but what you've got to do is you've got to get the congressional record, which is just a bunch of texts. Um, and, and then you've got to figure out how to associate all of the words in that congressional record with the member of Congress who was speaking. And there's actually a lot of parts of the congressional record that aren't members of Congress speaking. And so you've got to figure out how to deal with that as well. And so, um, so, so we teamed up with a computer science student um, who was a, actually got a master's degree in, in computer science at another institution and then was an undergraduate in one of my classes and got really interested in this project because I was talking about it. And he ended up really doing a lot of the, of the line by line coding um, to, to figure out how to accurately pull out all the text from the congressional record, associate it with the right member of Congress, um, and then get us into a point where we could actually start doing the things that we cared about substantively. Yeah, so then once that those data were all kind of in place, then what we did is we basically used what uh, a pretty simple approach, but one that was appropriate for us. It's called just a dictionary-based approach to measuring how frequently different topics are discussed. So in our case, I mean, there's different ways to determine which topics are discussed in a text. But in our case, it was pretty straightforward because... We had done the look into the New York Times index and actually said, okay, these are the the issues that have been most prominently covered in the media, the economic issues over the last, you know, 20 years or so. So knowing those topics, you know, inflation, unemployment, the deficit, things like that, we could come up with a list of terms that are closely associated with those topics. And then we basically just, you know, do some, some uh, basic programming and in we use R um, and we um, count up a number of terms related to inequality discussed by different members of Congress. We're able to have an aggregate count for the Congress and then link it to particular members. Uh, how often, say, Bernie Sanders spoke about inequality, how often Ted Kennedy spoke about wages, things of that nature. So it's one of the things. Oh, no, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, please. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I think is really unique about the techniques that we ended up being able to use is that we were actually able to measure 
a, the agenda at the individual member of Congress level. So a lot of times we talk about the congressional agenda as an aggregate thing that maybe is a House agenda and a Senate agenda or an aggregate congressional agenda. But here we were able to focus on exactly what each member of Congress was paying attention to, which enabled us to look at changes over time within each member of Congress in terms of what they were paying attention to, as well as changes over time and where their campaign contributions were coming from, um, con constituency characteristics, all kinds of things that might also explain what it is that they're paying attention to, um, which, which enabled us to, to, I think, do a more convincing job of teasing out the effects of financial resources and financial interests uh, on the, the types of issues that members of Congress were, were paying attention to. Um, so that was sort of the, the quantitative side, side of the analysis. And we might have just stopped there if, you know, if we would have sort of done what we usually do as Americanists. Um, but we really thought that there was, that there was some, some value added by taking a deeper dive um, and looking at, at case studies and doing some more uh, qualitative analysis of what was happening and not just superficial qualitative analysis. I mean, I think so many times when I read American politics books, if there's any case studies or qualitative analysis, it's kind of an afterthought. It's kind of like, well, you know, we need to make sure that normal people can have some understanding of what we're talking about. So we'll throw a few stories in here, but they're not very systematic. They're not really integrated into the larger research design. Um, and we wanted to take an approach that wasn't that, that was, that was actually integrating multiple methods into an analysis that could be much more con convincing. And, and we had uh, Jana on the team who is just, you know, a deeply, deeply expert at, at this kind of analysis. And so maybe she can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the details of the qualitative. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's great about what we're able to do in the book is we're able to show these um, patterns of influence at the aggregate congressional level, at the level of individual members using quantitative analysis and some um, sophisticated techniques there. Um, but that tells us sort of like the patterns of the relationships that exist between money and speech. Uh, so money and the member of Congress's uh, individual agenda. But what the qualitative analysis allows us to add to that is to understand sort of um, the links between the money and what the members of Congress are doing and to also sort of flesh out other facets of power besides just the money, right? So the, the qualitative analysis helps us to see power at work um, and how it actually operates. And it also enables us to see different dim dimensions of power at work in ways that maybe the quantitative analysis can get at roughly, the qualitative analysis can dig into more. And so we do in the book um, three case studies, as Susan mentioned earlier, of deregulation, re-regulation of the financial sector, um, and then the minimum wage. And by looking at these issues where deregulation and regulation are really clearly upper class issues that are primarily of concern to, to wealthy actors, although they affect the lives of everyday Americans too, um, but they're issues that are really primarily on the agenda and the minds of wealthy actors. Um, and then the minimum wage, which is an issue that's primarily on the minds of the, the sort of ordinary Americans, lower, lower middle class um, people, that we're able to look at how different issues operate on the agenda. And then also by looking at um, both deregulation and re-regulation over time, we're able to see how shifts in the structural context and, and the power of, of business at different periods of time um, 
has an important role in sort of creating opportunities on the agenda um, for lower class interests to potentially make some headway. And so that that temporal analysis within the single issue area gives us some leverage. And then within each of those issues, we kind of dive into the data, right? So one of the things that we do, for example, when we're talking um, about financial deregulation is we actually trace daily contributions by Citibank to members of Congress. And Citibank was a huge um Factor in the financial deregulation story because they had actually um, participated in a merger that was not legal under the existing regulatory framework, and they needed Congress to change that regulatory framework in order for that merger to be able to um, proceed. And so they were really super invested in this issue. And so we were actually able to show, for example, how members of Congress would receive um, donations from Citibank and then act on the deregulatory policy that Citibank wanted to see move forward on the agenda. Um, another thing we do is we look at the speech of individual uh, members of Congress who receive um, money from particular interests and show how their behavior um, aligns with that interest's goals in ways that maybe conflict with that member's um, particular ideological predilections or their constituencies. Uh, predilections. And so we can kind of tease out the effects of money um, within individual members uh, over time as well. And so these are lots of ways um, that we try to look at the agenda in a disaggregated way. One thing I wanted to pick up on too that Jana alluded to was, I think, an important theoretical point in the book, and it's an empirical point, but that's on structural power. And I think in the existing literature up to this point, structural power is, is oftentimes viewed as this totally static thing. That is, business always has structural power, structural advantages that never changes over time. There's always structural power advantage for business. We agree that like, that's partially true, but we show that structural power can actually ebb and flow over time as well, just like kinetic power can. Everybody sort of gets that you know, how much money is spent, how much lobbying happens, those kinds of things can change uh, pretty quickly over time. But we show that structural power um, can change as well. And that particularly comes out in the re-regulation um, case study where we talk about, the, you know, this, this ideational idea that, uh, that, that business is important for everybody and that if business doesn't succeed, nobody succeeds. Um, the, the crisis that happened um, in 2007, 2008 um, really... Uh, raised some questions about the extent to which that belief is really true. Um, and it gave an opening uh, for something to happen um, that was against the interests of, of businesses and corporations and wealthy, wealthy folks um, that might not have happened otherwise. So I think that's a, a, an important point to drive home as well. Yeah. And one thing we're able to do in that case study, too, that's pretty interesting is we can show how different sectors of business were more or less implicated in the financial crisis. And therefore, certain segments of business were more affected by the re-regulatory push that happened um, after the crisis because they were sort of implicated as culpable in the crisis, whereas some sectors were less implicated and therefore maybe more likely to be isolated. And so you can even see how structural power um, can exist sort of in the aggregate for business, but also can, can vary across sectors as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I want to say that for listeners, so this discussion, which was a question about methodology, really can help you understand why this book is brilliant and why you should read it and why you should assign it to students. And this is a book that's assignable to undergraduates and uh, obviously graduate students. Um, is because the, the the brilliance is that the the methodology is so complex, so nuanced, and again so supported by funds from Russell Sage that allow to do everything that they wish to be done, or almost everything. I'm sure you still wanted more, and what that means is that the substantive outcomes are not driven by this very narrow methodology that will therefore show very, very shallow outcomes. I mean, the, the relationship between method and substance in this book is just tremendous, and, and I love it. I want to ask you one methods question, and then I want to unpack a little bit more about the campaign financing money and how it, it impacts um, these outcomes. You've, you've talked about this and given some great examples. As you were doing the coding, how did you handle race and gender? This is a really difficult to do. And, uh, and I'm wondering in, on the, both the algorithm side and also on the hand coding side, what particular approaches you took? Well, I, I think Jana maybe can speak about the uh, case studies where there are some discussions of, of different members of Congress, you know, coming from different uh, racial and ethnic groups, but also just different types of constituencies. Um, but in terms of the, uh, in terms of the actual, the speech data, which we coded up, um, we didn't really directly, uh, examine that or account for that, you know? So there's some of those discussions about income inequality are absolutely talking about, uh, you know, racial and ethnic and gender differences, wages, we did. We collected data on wages, and there was a lot going on about the Lilly Ledbetter Pay Act and things like that at the time. So, so that those uh, racial and gender inequities that exist are are in there indirectly in that way. Um, in this book, we didn't actually directly look at debates about you know who's talking about gender inequality uh, in wages and things like that. But that would have been accounted for in our in our overall data collection approach. Yeah, and I just add to that that I think we actually, Nate and I were just earlier today talking about um, doing something about gender with these data. So I think there are opportunities for us to do additional work that would allow us to look at some of these dimensions within the quantitative data, um, which isn't something that we necessarily centered in this manuscript. But in the in the qualitative analysis, you do see um, some ways in which this comes to the fore. For example, we have some discussion of the role of the Congressional Black Caucus in getting certain issues onto the agenda. Um, we talk about um, how some specific Black members of Congress behave around um, the congressional regulation and deregulation issue. Um, some um, sort of heroes of the civil rights movement, like John Lewis, um, actually come comes out looking a little bit uh, questionable in the book around contributions from insurance, which is a major who was a major contributor to his um, campaign, and and he doesn't actually uh, speak out 
out in favor of financial deregulation when the issue is on the agenda, but he doesn't speak against it, um, which is an interesting thing for us to have observed because he was a huge advocate for, um, for example, the Community Reinvestment Act that uh, was meant to benefit um, Black and and um, other people of color in particular. And it was an issue that was advocated for by the Congressional Black Caucus. Frequently, that was part of the conversation surrounding the financial deregulation policy process. And while other members of the Congressional Black Caucus really take a lead on advocating on that issue, and you can see this as sort of a centerpiece of the agenda from um, people like Maxine Waters, for example, um, that you don't hear from John Lewis on that particular topic, on this particular bill in which insurance was a major, um, you know, really pushing for the deregulation. And so it, there's complexity within what happens. There's sort of heterogeneity um, at, you know, at the, even the individual level in terms of how different um, interests get heard and, and have influence. Yeah, and just adding to, to these points, while our primary focus in the in the book is is on on class and and wealthy and and, and business interests contrasted with lower middle class, we, we very much try to make the point theoretically that structural power and kinetic power, the the intersection of of race and gender holds further implications along the structural and kinetic dimension. And so both both within our own future research, and we very much hope others taking this theoretical framework um, will, will extend and, and continue to, to further understand the, these intersections and, and, and the implications. No, and you've got incredible tools because this, this point about the ideation, so not only are the words contributing to an understanding that the interests of business are map onto the interests of the, the nation economically, but also that the interests of white men, for example, are the interests of the nation. And that, that as I was reading the book, just I thought, I, I wonder if they've got, they've got another article coming out on this as well, because that has to be what, given the years that you're looking at, are the implications of most of what people are saying. Who, who is an American citizen? Who counts as a full citizen? And I think, you know, we're in a moment in which I think since the murder of uh, George Floyd, uh, since the Dobbs decision on abortion in the United States, we're having a conversation about citizenship and who is a full citizen. And, and in a sense, the congressional record would be one of the spaces in which you should be able to, to hear the construction of, of privilege and of who, who is the citizen. Um, okay. Everybody's mentioned campaign financing and I, and I, and I, and, I, and it's a big book. We're not going to be able to co- cover everything. That's why people need to buy the book. But should we say a little bit more about some of the kind of shocking findings? I mean, some of you have alluded to one's uh, of sort of a direct relationship between somebody as what they're saying uh, one day in the congressional record and the kind of, kind of contributions that they get. Do you want to speak a little bit more about the aggregate findings on that or some individual cases yeah, sure. I mean, so so this is uh, I've been interested in campaign finance for a long time. And just to be clear, as I think Peter pointed out, you know, there's a lot of aspects to kinetic power and in, in camp, you know, campaign contributions are just one of them. In fact, lobbying expenditures dwarf 
campaign contributions. It's just we can't create a database of lobbying at the individual level over you know 20 years as we did here. So in the in the kind of aggregate statistical analysis, essentially what we find is that when um, members of Congress uh, receive, say, more money from labor, they're more likely to talk in a subsequent Congress about issues like inequality in wages. When they receive more money from business interests, they're able to, uh, I'm sorry, you see them basically talking more about things like the deficit. And, you know, it's very, un- it's really hard to nail down causality with campaign contributions because there's all sorts of endogeneity and everything. But I mean, with our data where we're tracking this stuff over time, uh, you know, we can't 100% say we, we've found causal evidence that campaign contributions lead members of Congress to focus on particular issues. But we're holding a lot constant at the district level, at the member level, and then observing, well, you get more money from labor, you talk more about wages, you get more money from big business, you talk more about the deficit. And you know, we think that's an important finding because there's been a there's been a lot of political scientists who have been deeply skeptical of how uh, campaign finance, whether really campaign contributions affect uh, things in Congress at all. And we think they probably have a pretty minimal effect. I mean, my own research would show this, that they have a minimal effect on late stage things like voting. But when we're talking about getting issues onto the agenda, I think that's really where uh, you can get your bang for the buck if you want to. And, you know, it gets back to that old question of, of agenda control. And, you know, that's been put out there a lot that, that groups can use their power to control the agenda. But exactly how that happens has really not been examined very much. And so I think we find one answer to that. Do, do you see an effect of Citizens United in the book, in the daily? Um, you know what? We don't directly look at that, but we do look at whether independent. Exp- I mean, we do look at independent expenditures, which is something pretty unusual uh, in campaign finance research as well. So, to the extent that independent expenditures increased after that ruling, and they certainly did, that's absolutely going to be reflected in our data. So let's talk. You, you've you've alluded a lot to uh, things that have been done previously in political science well, and things that have been done not so well. Is there a contribution that the book makes that we've not mentioned so far that we should get out there? One thing I think is is really important. We've talked about the importance of using speech to understand the congressional agenda in the aggregate at the at the individual member of Congress level, and we've talked about the theoretical reason speech is important it's a costly signal and so forth we also show and this goes back to nate's point about the the process and the evolution of the research we also show looking at specific indicators of the legislative process that more speech on an issue predicts more legislative action and so i think this is some of the first empirical evidence that the aspects of the legislative process that are often studied are predicted in an empirical sense by the amount of speech on the topic, which is both an, empir- uh, an important empirical finding, but also very important to our, our measurement strategy and a validation of our measurement strategy and our overall uh, argument. One, one thing I would add to that, and, I, you know, the the rest of you can chime in with agreement or disagreement. I don't know, but like, I mean, I'm not a Congress scholar per, per se, but like my perception is that 
um, that a whole lot of, of research in Congress could could be pejoratively described as sort of inside baseball, like the, the nuts and bolts of what happens in Congress, party power, um, how much power leaders have, what the role of committees are, these sorts of things. Very important stuff in terms of how Congress works, but not so much attention to sort of how what Congress does affects people's lives. Um, not so much attention to who really has power, not in terms of whether party leaders or committees or individual members of Congress have power, but competing groups in society have power. Th those, those questions seem to be largely sort of set aside in the congressional li literature. And you know, my hope would be that, um, that this book would spur people to look outside of Congress uh, and, and apply some of these, these frameworks in other um, contexts, but also people who are interested in Congress um, to maybe reframe some of the questions that, that they ask and look at some of the old questions in the congressional literature through a different frame that centers power differentials a little bit more, that centers distributional consequences of what's happening in Congress and sort of puts an, an old school American political economy framework um, on top of what, what they're doing in terms of research um, in, in Congress. I, th I think. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think there's two other things that I don't think we've we've touched on. I mean, there's been a, a lot of research into responsiveness in the U.S. political system. So whether um, policy outputs at the federal level or in, at the state level are responsive to public opinion, but um, our our re and Peter has has weighed in on, on that debate at, at the federal level anyway. And our uh, research really shows that if that's an important question, whether once a bill is before Congress, you know, does Congress side with big business or public opinion? You know, that's an important question. But what we're showing in our research is that's really the tip of the iceberg or what would be the opposite of the tip of the iceberg? I don't know. It's the very like last thing. There's so much that is already baked in the cake by the time you get to the point where Congress is debating whether to actually vote on an issue. And that's dramatically understudied uh, relative to its importance in the policy process, I would say, by political scientists and even policy scholars, although they focus a little bit more on the agenda setting stage. The other thing I, I would say is like a, a question that kind of motivated this book to some degree was the broader question of, of how can economic conditions really deteriorate for the mass of people and or really just benefit, you know, the top 1%, top 0.1%. And that's been going on since the 70s, right? Wages, until the last couple of years, wages for basically people at the bottom of the income distribution have been declining or stagnant at best. You know, more and more going to the people at the top. How can this persist within a democracy? This has been a big question that a lot of people have, have you know, comparativists, Americanists have examined that. And I mean, I think we have a pretty we have a pretty compelling answer to that. And the question of getting back to the question of why aren't people out here demanding redistribution? Well, if you never hear members of Congress talking about inequality and redistribution or talking about stagnant wages or very rarely compared to how you hear them talking about the deficit every day, well, then that's going to shape how you think about the problems in the world. So, I mean, this is a big thing that's been happening a lot, not, not just in the U.S., but across a number of affluent democracies where inequality is increasing, you know, things like that. And 
and how can that persist in a democracy? Well, I think we have kind of an answer to that question. Um, my question was going to be for people to sort of give some insights before we leave, and and, and thank you both for doing that. And I'm going to just turn to 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 Jana and then Peter also for if there's just is this is sort of an ending thought that you have, and then I have one or two other questions, but. But, but something that you're thinking about in terms of the book, its overall contribution, really anything you want. Yeah, I would. I, thanks for the question, Susan. I think one thing I would really like to emphasize is to listeners who are maybe not Americanists that are interested in um, issues of power and, and influence in other contexts that I think this book shows that the U.S. isn't just some kind of extreme outlier case, that a lot of the theories that we use to understand power and influence, say, in comparative political economy, um, welfare states literatures around the world, that these theories have purchase for understanding how the U.S. policy process works as well, and that the U.S. case um, can also yield insights into comparative theories about um, these kinds of questions. So I think for me that that connection is both a source of theoretical inspiration in the book. It's a source of sort of methodological um, inspiration. But I think I hope that what we're doing here can also speak back to those literatures in ways that are fruitful for scholars. Um, and actually, I just saw uh, randomly a paper on Costa Rica that cited this book. So that made me smile. Um, so, yeah, that's something I'd like to emphasize. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Jenna, I'm seeing some books on the podcast that need to include a comparativist. Americans don't, uh, Americanists have not studied coups, for example. They don't actually have a lens through which to understand certain kinds of authoritarian power that were not the things when you were in graduate school together were were, were the, the main menu for training Americanists. So it becomes really important. I see that in, at my own university and planning events. I have to include my person who's the Russia specialist. Shout out to Lisa Bellioni. Okay, uh, Peter, uh, last thoughts on, 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 on the book and wh- where it, you think you land with it, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Susan. Well, I would say that, you know, Chris did a great job flagging how our theoretical argument with structural and kinetic power can help understand why as wealth has been concentrated among the super rich, we haven't seen the what we might expect to be the response from the the, the broader public. But I, I, I also hope that our, this idea of structural power and position, how that shifts, as Nate was saying, and the idea of kinetic power and how groups at whatever level of of the social structure can exert influence also offers a framework for understanding how how power and influence can shift and that if we understand how we have gotten to the position we are in the united states and understand the the processes of inequality over the last several decades this is also a theoretical framework for thinking about how to change things and make them more equitable in the future Great. I'm, and I'm so glad that you say that because it was something that uh, I was saying to you all before that I did find this a depressing book. Uh, I mean, it's hard to read. It's hard to face some of these charts that you have. The charts are really hard to look at, even the ones that I've seen before, but especially the ones that you've created. But there is a kind of a, a hopefulness in the book of providing a toolbox of saying, okay, so this is this is what it looks like. And occasionally, 
other groups can use and take advantage of this system, but let me show you the system. And actually, Jana, what you were, the story you were telling about John Lewis, I mean, that's really important too, because it shows part of the reason that the Democrats can't just step in and grab this because they are also beholden to the companies. So they can't just say, by the way, we're the party of every American. I want to ask you a question. The database ends at 2016. And American politics has developed in all sorts of ways since 2016. Uh, I'm wondering if you have a plan for bringing the database up to the present and whether you suspect that anything has changed in terms of the congressional record, in terms of speech, and, and in terms of the patterns that you you found overall in the book, is, is there is there, yeah, period. That's my question. I think if uh, somebody wants to give us maybe a few hundred thousand dollars, we would be more than happy to uh, extend the database and do further analysis. But uh, in all seriousness, I it's I think you know the the growth of inflation has really gotten me thinking. You know, what would this mean for because the entire time period that we examined, inflation was very low. And now you really do have a, a pretty clear trade-off between wage growth and inflation, right? I mean, wage growth, especially at the low end of the income distribution, has been pretty fast uh, the last couple of years. And that's partly what's fueling inflation. I mean, probably to a lesser extent now with gasoline. And you obviously have basically the Fed and a lot of people in Congress talking about, wow, we really need to get this inflation under control. And what that means is, right, we need to have a recession and we need to get have people get unemployed and we need to have wages go down, basically. So that's that's happening right now. And I guess if I were going to make some predictions about who is this, who, who is discussing this and how they're discussing it, I think it would fit very much within the framework of our book where your people who are more pro-labor and supported by labor are going to be maybe less aggressively in support of increasing interest rates and doing other things to very rapidly bring down inflation, whereas other people would be much less concerned about, about wages and be like, let's get this inflation under control and very quickly. And so I think that's one thing that would be interesting to, to extend the data and look at. Well, I want to say that um, I love the book and you were perhaps the four authors easiest to set up a podcast with. And I can see why the book is so good because you are so collaborative and um, complimentary uh, to each other with both the E and the I. And that's kind of lovely to celebrate in the beginning of August as um, many political scientists are thinking about their research and their collaborators. Um, Christopher Whitko, Jenna Morgan, Nathan J. Kelly, and Peter K. Inns are the authors of Hijacking the Agenda, Economic Power and Political Influence, not only published by the Russell Salish Foundation in 2021, but supported by a very, very generous grant that allowed for this kind of nuanced and in-depth research. I hope you can find the other hundreds of thousands of dollars to update. Maybe maybe somebody out there is listening. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today on New Books and Political Science. Thank you, Susan. Thank this you. was super fun.